Hey folks, before we get going on today's show, I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by DoorDash, your favorite restaurants delivered right to your door. There are over 310,000 restaurant partners in 4,000 cities offering door-to-door delivery in all 50 U.S. states, Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia. Take that, mainland Europe. Uh, you can order from your local go-tos or choose from slightly more national restaurants like Chipotle Wendy's and the Cheesecake Factory. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter the code TSS. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store. Important that it be in the App Store. And enter the code TSS. Don't forget, that's code TSS for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. The Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove, and joining me in a very small hotel room, it's Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. I would say small by some standards. Like when we were in the Midwest, it's small by those standards. By yeah. New York standards, I feel like it's uh, somewhat spacious. I was pleasantly surprised. As was I. I was pleasantly surprised. We didn't walk in and immediately run into the bed, so yeah. that's a good start. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're off to a good start. So- I've, I've had that where, like, uh, in Turkey we stayed, or no, in Iraq, shocking, we stayed in a hotel where it was like the in toilet. The bill? Yes. The toilet, like, went underneath the counter of the sink. It was very weird. Like, you were sitting on the toilet <laughs> and then, like, sitting at the counter as well. It was a weird desk if you were very, very lazy slash gross. So we won't be doing that. We will not. We won't be Ideally doing that. not. So we're here in New York for, what, four or five days. Mm-hmm. We're going to be here for MLS Media Day. Mm-hmm. We're going to go and see NYCFC in the CONCACAF Champions League. It's going to be, honestly, a bit of a weird week if yeah. you're a Total Sock Show listener because we won't be regularly in our studio. Uh, we, normally, we're not sitting on beds facing each other. Not so much. For one thing. That would be an odd studio. And a different is, type of studio. Here's the weirdest part. Uh-huh. We're going to meet Ryan Bailey. It's going to be odd. Face to face. I don't know how I feel about it. But there's no weekend review this week. There's not. It's, 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 it's both the most and least Ryan Bailey ever in our lives. Yes, I think so. It's also, <laughs> I think I'm correct in saying that it is the person I've talked to the most without ever meeting. Because at this point, we've done, what, a year of weekend reviews yeah, thereabouts? Like and, an hour every Monday. Yeah, yeah and yeah. yet I have never met Ryan in person, so I look forward to changing that. So we'll, we'll update people on how that goes. What yeah. if he's terrible in person? What, what, do you mean like terrible Just looking? mean and grumpy. Like and if he's all like, uh, if, he's seen, all, if he's all masked out? I've seen a photo of him. He's, he's English handsome. <laughs> yes, he's English handsome. Wow. I'm going to let him know you said that. Should we talk about our super eventful train ride up? Just kidding. Daryl and I both know how to travel, which is we slept two hours, got on the train, and slept the entire way here. It's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. It's the way to do it. Everything's first class if you're asleep. But Daryl, <laughs> we're working on a presentation, and we need to sit together, and the entire train car needs to hear about the presentation we're working on. Oh, that I love that that was the only time that you and I woke up and both just sort of silently communicated our frustration, and then yep. went back to sleep. Yep. It's good yep, times. Yep, yep. Um, what else are we doing this week? Oh, we're mm-hmm. also going to appear on uh, the Cooligans mm-hmm. uh, Fubo Sports Show. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll be televised this week. We forced you've, our way on. If you've ever wondered what... When what our faces look like yep. you're gonna find out and Can't you're gonna wait. be surprised mm-hmm. everyone's always surprised everyone is always surprised we mention your beard all the time everyone's surprised when you got a beard you got some facial hair i mean just the natural outgrowth <laughs> but i feel like that's what people think i'm growing with my facial I hair i see no yours you is on? much more uh much more pacific northwest mm-hmm. all right shall we get to it today? <laughs> pacific northwest indeed we have six listener questions that we're excited to answer mm-hmm. i am i'm always excited for listening i have a question shows. arising from one of our questions yeah. okay let's read it out first right. and then we'll get to the question mm-hmm. this question is from rosie white mm-hmm. okay rosie white asks the U.S. women's national team has a higher average age than most teams, which is true, right? It is. Carly Lloyd's 37, Megan Rapinoe's 34. Oh, I've got stats for you. Alex Morgan, Christian Press, all mm-hmm. in the 30s. Okay. Um, but don't have the youth team success to ensure their winning legacy will remain in the coming cycles, mm. e.g. compared to Spain or Japan. Mm. Is this an issue? Before we answer, yeah. do you think this is the Rosie White? I don't know. I have questions. I would like to know because we've met Rosie White. She was uh, at the live show with the Cooligans in Chicago. Yep. Uh, and 2018 then, in Chicago? Yeah, I think yep. so. And it was then, Rosie White and Danny Caliprico. There you go. Yeah. And then we watched her in the World Cup for the, for the Ferns yes. for New Zealand. Uh, I would like to think that this is Rosie White now listening to the show. Maybe having discovered it then. Maybe having discovered it during the Women's World Cup. Either way. Uh, but That's if it's it. not, we also appreciate Rosie White that might messaging. Be it. Here's why I think this might actually mm-hmm. be the Rosie White, is that she doesn't refer to the U.S. Women's National Team as mm-hmm. us or we. Yep. She refers to the U.S. Women's National Team as um, there, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So it's not us. Yep. She's mm-hmm. not on our side. Mm-mm. She's on the fern side. <laughs> she has a fern tattoo. 
Yeah, if the next question were like, <laughs> how can we defeat the North Carolina Courage, then I would feel slightly more confident in saying that this is definitely Rosie White. Oh, yeah, and just, just so we know, um, Rosie White moved from the Chicago Red Stars. Mm-hmm. She is now with Rain FC. There we go. Yeah. I'm excited to see how it progresses from there. And if this is indeed Rosie White, but to Rosie's question, uh, first for people wondering about that like straight-up declaration in the beginning, it is the case that uh, the U.S. Women's National Team, I believe, at least from my hasty research, did indeed have the oldest team at the World Cup in 2019. Okay. Average age of 28.6, uh, which kind of makes sense, I think, given like the kind of squad carryover from 2015. If you're the yeah. world champions and all those players or most of those players are still good to go, you keep most of them. Yep. That said, and I was listening to ages before. Mm-hmm. Most of the forward line um, mm-hmm. is 30 plus. Right? Yeah, it's really if you look at the preliminary She Believes roster, uh, there's, I think, 26 players on there. That average age, 28.2. So we're down 0.4. <laughs> That's good. Uh, but really, if you bring, if you remove Rose Lavelle, Andy Sullivan, Jordan DiBiase, Mallory Pugh, and Tierna Davidson from that one, now we're at like 30 years old because yeah. that midfield is is significantly younger and then you Crucially, add in one defender, one attacker. None of those are starters. New. No. Or presumed starters. Well, Rose Lavelle right. might be. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Apart from Rose yeah. Lavelle, not starters. Mm. Um, okay. Rose Lavelle, definitely a starter. So the second part of Rose's question um the the sort of what what you call it don't have the youth mm-hmm. team success yeah this is true 2018 there was a u20 world cup mm-hmm. and a u17 world cup and the u.s didn't make it out of the group stage no. in either of them i think they finished third in their group in the u20 world cup and bottom of their group mm-hmm. at the u17 world cup this was in 2018 yes. so there are some warning signs there. There are. I mean, but then or you look that? at. I mean, I that's very confident because you go like to 2016, and I think at what the U20 World Cup, it was a quarterfinal finish, a round of 16. 2014 was the, whichever one it wasn't. There. 2016, uh, we made the semifinals. So quarterfinal. 2014, there. quarterfinals. And then the one before that, we won. Yeah. So like, so I, th- I I take the point that we won in 2012. We haven't won since, but you can't win every tournament unless you're the senior women's national team, in which case you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think mm-hmm. that like, so that right there, I don't wouldn't say it's necessarily that like. On the men's side, failing to qualify for two Olympics, that's problematic. Uh, yeah. Here, I think like that, they're still qualifying for everything. Maybe they had a down tournament. We went back and watched some of those games uh, for top drawer soccer. It was not the best tactics. It I was watched not that very... 2018 U20 mm-hmm. World Cup at yeah. the time for top draw soccer. This was the team coached mm-hmm. by uh, Jitka Klimkova. Mm-hmm. I remember a lot of long balls just hoping that Sophia Smith would run on the end of them. And, and that's where I would say that like you don't quite see what I do think we see today, which is the youth teams on both the men's and women's side playing more soccer that is more representative of what the senior team is trying to do. Yep. And in that in that tournament, it was a lot of kick it long to Sophia Smith. It was a lot of five players forward, five players back, zero midfield peg the ball long and defeat and hope yeah. somebody can do something. And so I would say that like, yeah, I'm not surprised that they lost there and I would prefer that they lose playing bad soccer so that it kind of evolves and becomes better possession, better uh, yep. possession oriented attacks and you get better chances and then it sort of makes it more seamless when, if and when they do move to the senior team. I would argue that one down cycle mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily predict mm-hmm. a future failure of those players yeah. because as an example, um, the the men's team mm-hmm. in 2015 went to the U17 World Cup and it was the Pulisic team um, mm-hmm. and they didn't do very well at all but then Pulisic goes on to be a key player yeah. for the US men's national team yeah. right so it's in a lot of ways it's just it, it doesn't matter what the performance is if it's a one-off or a two-off mm-hmm. if it's consistent yeah. that's when we should be worried and that's why I'm really interested in now Kate Margraff is uh, the general manager of U.S. Women's National Teams, uh, among other roles, Mm -hmm. um, as we discovered. Um, We have new coaches, right? We have Laura Harvey coaching the U-20s this year. Um, So for me, like one decent tournament performance, and I would stop being worried about the performance of the youth teams altogether. Yeah, fair. I think so. I think I'm still not even at that level because for me, you look at that national team and in order for someone to move on, there's got to be somebody better coming through. And that's not just because like until a player proves that they can be there, they don't necessarily belong there, but also because we know about the pay structure. We know that it benefits you to be an allocated player. So you want to stay with the national team for as long as you yeah, can. Definitely. So I think it makes sense then that if you don't have much turnover, because there is this incentive to stay with the best national team in the world for as long as you can, you're not just going to see a lot of new players coming in. You'll see a few so players think, tried here and there. Are you saying the reason that there isn't, like, outside of, say, Lynn Williams mm-hmm. is, I think, 26, right? Yeah. She, apart from Lynn Williams, there isn't this cohort of four... I'm thinking specifically of the four pools, I think mm-hmm. is the best example. There isn't this cohort of forwards that's pushing Carly Lloyd or Megan exactly. Rapinoe yeah. or Alex Morgan or Tobin Heath all over 30, mm-hmm. right? There's not, this, there's not that cohort that's pushing them out of the team. Mm-hmm. But is it just because they got their first... And they keep performing yeah. and there's no reason to drop them. Yeah. Or is it a lost generation type thing? The thing is, we don't know, right? Because we we've never had a chance. Because even when any of those players get injured, 
there's a Christian press mm-hmm. or someone else coming in behind them, yeah, right? In I the mean, same cohort. I, I wouldn't say it's a lost generation even. And uh, there are many people who know much more about this topic than I, so grain of salt here. But like, you look at Chris, uh, Crystal Dunn and where she's been playing for the national team. You look at uh, Lindsey Horan, who started off more on her later, uh, who started off at least with PSG as being a more like forward attacking player and has moved into midfield probably because when you move to the national team, there aren't as many available spots. And so I think like you may have seen those players pushing oh, some people out in another situation. So Crystal Dunn could have been one of those left wingers that's right that's what i'm but saying instead she's the left yeah. Right. yeah and so i think the reason why i feel like that applies to this question is because i won't really worry because in my mind maybe this is like too hipstery i don't know but like i'm not so that wor- beard? yes <laughs> probably but like i'm not so worried about like winning the u20 world cup would it be nice would it be great to win a tournament yeah it's always nice but the goal of these tournaments i feel like is to see who can perform in a competitive level yeah who can kind of take the reins who can perform well and who can prove that they deserve that step to the next level yeah and it's if about we, player development yeah, as much as anything yeah right? and so i feel like because we haven't ne- seen that sort of the generation currently move on like once that happens and if nobody were there to fill the fill the shoes and yeah, to yeah. fill the goals literally that's when i would be like oh this is problematic so okay here's what i'd say mm-hmm. i mostly agree with you um i'd even go as far as saying uh, yeah i agree with you that perform performance in the tournament isn't that that important mm-hmm. but i would expect the u.s women's national team youth teams to get out of the group stage yeah, right I and think that's so why the performances at the u20 and u17 world cups in 2018 mm-hmm. genuinely do worry me a little bit if they get repeated again this year. Mm-hmm. So I think we should all be paying extra close attention to this year's U20 World Cup, this year's U17 World Cup, which, by the way, are in August mm-hmm. for the U20s, and India in November for the U17s. The August U20 World Cup is in Costa Rica and Panama. Mm-hmm. So make sure that the US Women's National yes. Teams get out of the group stage. Then I'll, I'll, I'll breathe easier. My final point on this one, if you'll forgive me, is that I realized that where I just left my last point was essentially at... If and when all those players have moved on and zero players have replaced them, we're going to be in a lot of trouble if that's the case. And I think I pointed to that as like, that will be my warning sign, is like when we are in the worst possible situation. Yeah, yeah. So I think to modify like, to, that like, a bit... To, your warning sign's too late, is what you're Yeah, saying. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I think to modify it a bit, it would be like if we continue to see Mallory Pugh not make the Olympic team, if we continue to see those mm-hmm. younger players not make that jump, like maybe they still get every now and then they'll be called on the preliminary roster, but then they're all trimmed off and it's still those same players at yeah. 35, 36, 37, 38, 39. Who knows with Carly Lloyd? Maybe yeah. she's 50. But I think that would still be... Still playing. Yeah, if yeah. you don't start to see more. I just want my sixth World Cup. (laughs) Is that so much to ask? (laughs) Then I'd be a bit more nervous. (laughs) All right. Next Mm. question comes from Robert Cordova. But thank you, Rosie White, even if you haven't played in a World Cup, Rosie White. Oh, because the real Rosie White. I mean, everyone everyone called Rosie White is the real Rosie White. This is true. But only one of them has played in a World Cup that we know (laughs) of. Robert Cordova asks... um, Robin Van Persie retired last summer. Mm-hmm. How will you remember his career? Yes. I believe this is the part in the show where I mentioned that I'm a Manchester United fan, so that probably biases things a little bit because I will not remember him so much for his time with Arsenal as his time with Manchester United. Even though his time with Arsenal was much, much, much longer. Much, much longer. Yeah. Yes, but I think that is actually part of my answer because I think in the end, he is a sort of what-might-have-been player for me because though he is... I mean, you go to the Wikipedia page, the first thing it says is, like, regarded as one of the best pure strikers of his generation. I would agree with that. And still, with that said, it it takes him moving to Manchester United to win the Premier League, which is maybe a a commentary on him. Maybe it's a commentary commentary on Man United at the time or Arsenal at the time. league title in his career. Mm -hmm. He won the FA Cup with Arsenal. Champions League runner-up. I think mm-hmm. he won a Dutch Cup with Feyenoord first go-round, but didn't win the Dutch League. Mm-hmm. So yeah, his first league title was that final season of Alex Ferguson yeah. with Manchester United. It was like Fergie's final masterstroke yeah. was getting Van Persie I to mean, sign for United. And it really was. It really was. Because like you look at that season and how prolific it was, and you combine it with his last season at Arsenal. I was looking this up. Uh, final season at Arsenal, 38 games, 30 goals. Uh, first season at Manchester United, 38 games and 26 goals. So yeah. right there. Very, very strong. But then the year before and the year after each of those, 45 appearances total, 30 goals total. So suddenly you see the sort of up and down of his career. A lot that, of injuries, right? I remember injuries towards the end. So that's the thing that really stood out to me is going, going back eight seasons, I believe, at least at Arsenal, 194 appearances, three seasons at Manchester United, almost 90 appearances. Right. So basically, like, you can see right there with Arsenal – how injured he was there were games there were seasons when I think he only played like eight games or single digit games and I think that's where sort of if he's healthy for 30 games every season 
that Arsenal team is probably winning much more than they did. Yeah. Not putting that all on him, but I do think that sort of is where he stands in my head. Of like, yeah, he was really good, but that Arsenal team never won the league, so it was never like mm-hmm. they're coming end of the title ch- contenders. They're definitely the favorites, and they've got an informal RVP. This team is terrifying. Instead, it was hey, it's Arsenal and it's RVP. He's coming back from injury. They'll probably be good, but not that good. Let's talk about his skill set, sure. right? So what I remember about Robin van Persie, the first thing I remembered mm-hmm. when I saw this question was positional change yeah i remember robin van persie joining arsenal from Feyenoord as a left winger mm-hmm. right they brought this new dutch left winger right then over the course of his career he moved from left winger to like support striker second striker type type player and then towards not even towards the end but like by the time he's around about 30 he's just playing pure center forward for mm-hmm. arsenal and then for manchester united and also for the dutch national team mm-hmm. and he had the skill set to do all of those things. You think being a winger, especially like early 2000s, it's a lot about just dribbling, pace, going past mm-hmm. people. Being a support striker, it's about like those creative moments, like like those magic moments where you create a bit of space and like slip a ball through to someone. And then being a pure striker is all about, you know, the instinct of where to be, the mm-hmm. technique of like picking your spot and finding it every time, the confidence and composure to do that. And you can watch like highlights from his career. And it's almost like watching three different players if you watch it mm-hmm. chronologically. Yeah. And it's an absolute feast for the eyes (laughs) because he has those like iconic moments the one that always stands out to me i think the one that will probably be the enduring goal of his career is the diving header for the dutch 2014 world cup yeah Yeah. against spain i believe it was Mm -hmm. like he has those moments that are so iconic but then yeah you go back and watch the non-iconic moment we'll just watch a season when he scored 15 or 20 goals all of them you know obviously there can be some tap-ins here and there but most of them are very high quality and show sort of his all-around uh, yeah. gameplay, which, uh, to your point... sweet volleys. Yeah, but I think that does come from the sort of changing the position and changing what he's being asked to do, but bringing different skill sets with him to yeah. those new positions. I watch him and I see a little bit Thierry Henry, mm-hmm. a little bit Dennis Bergkamp, mm-hmm. and a little bit Ruud van Nistelrooy. Yep. You could be tricked into thinking you're watching any of those three players, which yeah. is not a bad compliment for a player. All three of whom he played with, I think. Two with Arsenal, one with the Dutch national team. Yep, there, there you go. go. Yeah. There we go. So that, that, makes, that makes some sense to me. And I will say that Dutch national team doesn't really help him that much either because they make it to the World Cup final in 2010, yep. but it's... It's the one that... Uh, Johan- I don't, he was on that team, right? He was. I don't remember much about it's, him in 2010. Was I not paying attention? It's the team that Johan Cruyff Was denounced, I watching Donovan remember? goals instead? Do you remember what I'm talking about, though? That Johan Cruyff denounced that Dutch team because they yeah. played the complete antithesis yeah, of the, how they're supposed the to play? Van Bommel de Jong team. Yeah, so it was a really <laughs> ugly team, and I think that therefore you don't remember all of the amazing goals that they probably scored and how good they were. You remember the kind of fight and the kick to the chest. Yeah. 2014, they make it to the semifinals, but again, it's sort of under Louis van Gaal. It's the counter-attacking Dutch style that yeah. they're going to spring this attack on you. And Aside from that, remembers. you go back to his Euros, and the Euros with the Dutch are not good in his time period where he's there. 20, 2008 quarterfinals, okay. Uh, 2012 group stage, 2016 did not qualify. So right there, Thank like, you. Exactly. So I think also because the national team never reached that high of a level under him, or as, like, as high as you would expect for the Dutch, when he was in his prime and he wasn't that like focal point of the team when they were sort of playing this beautiful attacking soccer, yeah. he doesn't really like stand out on the national team level either. 2014, though, I remember as being like mm-hmm. a Van Persie. Yeah, Dutch but that's, that's the one where I'm saying, again, it was like a counter-attacking Dutch side under Louis van Gaal. Oh, they're I kind see, of see, see. stodgy, and then they spring it on you. Like that game against Spain when they won 5-1 or whatever yeah, it was, yeah. I think the enduring statistic is that they had like 36% possession that game. Mm-hmm. Like they let Spain have it, and then they just kind of pillaged them. Oh, well, uh, mm-hmm. Louis van Gaal. Yeah. Louis van Gaal. Um, all right, today's show, mm-hmm. before we move on, is sponsored by... Hello Fresh. It you can get is. mouth-watering seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door with Hello Fresh, America's number one meal kit. I don't want to do any mouth-watering while I'm talking into a mic. That do. is ideal. I'll do all my mouth-watering at home when I open my Hello Fresh box. Mouth noise, my least favorite thing in the world. Yep. Uh, you can break out of your dinner up with Hello Fresh's 22 plus, that's 22 or more, seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. Who says I'm in a dinner rut? Uh, yeah, I don't know, Daryl. I don't know, but I've heard you just eat pasta all day, every day. I mean... That sometimes happens. <laughs> I will say we're in we're in New York City, the the city that never sleeps, Daryl. That physically hurt me to say. But you do have so many options. I think in like the quarter mile around our hotel, we have like thirty different restaurants open till four AM, all of which have different yeah. specialties. And yet, I still see the appeal of HelloFresh because you have all those options. It can be a little bit overwhelming, but if you have all the delivery, uh, uh, if you have all the ingredients sent right to your door, then you can stay inside. You don't have to go out shopping. They just come right to you. So even in a city where you have everything, you still see the appeal of HelloFresh. You do need a kitchen, though. I wouldn't get it delivered to our hotel room. We do not have a kitchen or cooking utensils. I mean, 
Raw food people disagree. <laughs> Eat that raw pasta. Now. If you're not in a hotel, mm-hmm. if you're in a home, um, HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and prepping. So you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes, even 20 minutes with their quick recipe options. Or if you do the 30 minute one, but do it really fast. This will come as no surprise to you. I am now looking around our hotel room MacGyver style. Like we've got a refrigerator. We've got a water heater for coffee. I feel like I can make a HelloFresh meal with just those two things. You think? <laughs> I'd like to see you I don't know if the fridge thing. helps so much with the food prep, but <laughs> the uh, hot water probably would. Um, you could add extra meals or lunches to your weekly order throw in uh yummy sides desserts like garlic bread and cookie dough easily change your delivery days or food preferences and skip a week whenever you need so there's lots of flexibility not just from the menu but from the delivery itself and we have we have both used Mm -hmm. HelloFresh. we have both enjoyed it we have both uh cooked up some delicious meals which is an achievement for me i feel like you're a better (laughs) cook but when i use HelloFresh, it does come out looking just like the picture so if you want your meal to come out just like the picture go to hellofresh.com slash tss10 use code tss10 for 10 free meals including free shipping that's hellofresh.com slash tss10 and use code tss10 for 10 free meals including free shipping thank you very much to hellofresh for sponsoring today's episode thank you to carol pierce tasha maori and Lainey uh, Pludemann, that's a very Dutch name, I'm going to say, uh, who all asked roughly the same question, possibly inspired by a Kim McCauley tweet, could the United States play the aforementioned Lindsay Horan as a false nine? I'm really confident this was inspired by a Kim McCauley tweet, because mm-hmm. at least two of these people said, as seen in a Kim McCauley ah, tweet. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you don't know Kim McCauley, um, SB Nation writer, mm-hmm. uh, very focused on the US women's national team. Um, the idea is that we have so many quality midfielders um, and Alex Morgan is out and maybe Kylie Lloyd's not always doing the greatest job at centre forward that maybe we try Lindsay Horan as the false nine and then we can have Sam Mewis, Rose Lavelle and Julia as the three central midfielders and we can stop having the endless debate of four top mm-hmm. quality central midfielders, only three spots. Yeah. Is that an an endless debate that we're all having? Or can it just be like, we start three in one game, three in another? On Twitter, it's an endless debate. Yeah, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm personally, I'm very comfortable with the idea of... This is what happens when you win two World Cups in a row. Yeah. Yeah. I'm comfortable with the idea of rotating Uh it around. And sometimes Haran starts, sometimes Nua starts, sometimes one of the the four misses Mm -hmm. out, but eventually comes on anyway and maybe plays the next game. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with it. But I think a lot of people have in their head that they want to get all these players on the field at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, And yet we still complain about Crystal Dunn being a left back. Just throwing that out there too. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, to be fair, that's caused by an absence of left backs, mm-hmm. right? That's more like there isn't uh, an obvious person to play left back, so Crystal Dunn has to get, fill that role. Casey Short would like a word with you. I mean... <laughs> I know, I know. But I think that is part of this for me because similarly, I don't understand why it needs to be a false nine that she's playing because as I said, Lindsay Horan with BSG uh, and earlier in her career was just an out-and-out striker as far as I understand, as far I as I maybe, remember. Maybe most people don't know this. Yeah. Maybe most people don't know that Lindsay Horan just straight up played center forward back in the day. Yeah. I, I can't say that I've seen any footage. I just sort of know from reports that this has mm-hmm. happened. But it does feel like she could do a lot of what is asked of uh, US women's national team number nines. That she could lead the line. She could run in behind. She could certainly win stuff in the air. She could hold up play she could battle for things she's got a good a good foot we know she can score goals i think it makes sense i think it's just that it comes down to the depth ahead of her as we've already kind of talked about i think it would as well it would work Mm -hmm. fine against sort of lesser opposition Mm -hmm. right we could have played Lindsay Horan as a false nine all the way through CONCACAF olympic qualifying and until we played canada Mm -hmm. it would have been absolutely fine when we played canada it would have been an experiment in a big game and we we just don't know yeah right i mean i wouldn't be against seeing this tried just to see what happens uh but maybe lindsey Horan wants to play central midfield yeah and i because you lose some lindsey Horan things if you play her as false nine right you lose her sort of box-to-box ability yeah and i and i think like going back to our conversation we had recently about uh chelsea and why they i think they might struggle in uh the champions league this week because of how they struggled against manchester united a big part of that was bringing in michi bachwai who i think isn't familiar with the rotations the repetitions and the patterns and you're just kind of throwing him in and be like okay, go do it. And I think that if you're going to do this with Lindsay Horan, it has to be sort of a permanent move. She yeah. has to move to be that number nine because she has to get the reps and learn how to play it in That's training to then yeah. be able to play it in the game. And if you do that, then you set her up against a situation in which you still have Carly Lloyd, you have Lynn Williams, and then there's a decent chance we have a returning Alex Morgan. Mm-hmm. You still have kind of a backlog of players there or a, a logjam of players, and then there's limited minutes there too. You know what you lose? Hmm. Lindsay Horan, central midfielder. Exactly. Right? So even if she ends up being fourth choice mm-hmm. for the three, uh, the th- uh, three central midfielders, in some games yeah she's still very 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 close to starting Mm -hmm. and she's still going to come off the bench and impact that game in central midfield basically 
I'm against this idea because I don't want to lose Lindsay Horan central midfielder. I agree. I agree. And that could be both as a starting central midfielder and as an impact sub when the United States needs some technical play to slow things down and find like better shooting chances. It could be to bring somebody in to be physical. If the game has mm-hmm. gotten physical, she can do that as well. I mean, uh, so I think it makes sense to have her stay more central in the midfield uh, for any number of different reasons. And to your Michi Batshuayi point, mm-hmm. Livia Giroud started this weekend. Yeah scored exactly yeah so get carly lloyd on the field i guess is what we're saying for chelsea yeah yeah um, mauricio sadikov <laughs> mm-hmm. mauricio sadikov asks what feels like a loaded question but yep. we're just going to take it at face value mm-hmm. what is the relationship between major league soccer and u.s soccer mm-hmm. confusing conflicted i guess is what i'm going to say because though i think a lot of the relationship is easily explainable how enmeshed everything is and how everyone seems to occupy a bunch of different positions within a bunch of different organizations that all kind of mean the same thing i think it makes it feel like it's a more insidious relationship than it probably is can we start with the basics then okay so u.s soccer Mm -hmm. is the governing body of soccer in the united states so i've been told major league soccer Mm -hmm. is the division one the highest tier Mm -hmm. soccer league in the united states U.S. soccer um, sanctions Major League Soccer as the Division One league mm-hmm. in the U.S., right? That's the relationship, right? The U.S. The US soccer is the governing body of all of soccer. Mm-hmm. MLS is just MLS, and it's just responsible for the premier tier of soccer mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah. That's the very basic relationship. Yes. It should be U.S. soccer overseeing MLS. Right. And it goes back to the United States getting the 1994 World Cup and basically being told by FIFA, yes, you can have it, but you have to start a domestic competition. Yeah. There is a vested interest from U.S. soccer in having that Tier 1, Division 1 league that can justify the existence of the Federation and justify bidding for continued tournaments and everything else. And this is why they're more entwined than you maybe see in other countries, mm-hmm. right? U.S. soccer, its, it's actual mission, its stated mission is to make soccer the preeminent sport in the United States. Their whole mission is about promoting soccer in the U.S., making it the best the best that it can be and they have i'd argue even with all the all the caveats and everything maybe correctly Mm -hmm. interpreted at least a big part of that to be we need to make the top division of Mm -hmm. soccer in the united states as successful as it can be right right? so it gives mls a helping hand semi-regularly may may i bring in some for a moment here do we want to leave that to sum well i mean we can mention it at least because soccer united marketing Mm -hmm. definitely is then a third organization that comes in and is sort of a bridge between mls and U.S. soccer. This, I, I want to maybe explore the rest of the relationship before we get to some, because that's some is maybe the well, main part of this. Th- that's fair. I think what I was just going to say is describe what U.S. soccer's goal is again, what you just said. To make soccer the preeminent sport in the United States. Which is also sums. <laughs> like, I think their operational philosophy is we want soccer to be the biggest thing in the world. And I think that's what we're in this country. And I do think some of the kind of uh, like like overlap of message and overlap of goal is why people, I think, see them as more inextricably linked and also maybe not in the best possible way. So I just wanted to point that out there, that yeah. there's a lot of like commonality in the goals of the different organizations. All right. So, I mean, let's get to Suck United Marketing sure. then. So, yeah, in what, back in 2002, mm-hmm. um, it was set up by um, the Major League Soccer owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, this company was set up. There was essentially a commercial company to market sports and to sell TV rights and commercialize soccer in the United States. And the right? primary reason there was because at that point there was no, uh, I think, TV contract in place for the 2002 World Cup. Again, Major League Soccer has a vested interest in people having eyes on the World Cup yep. uh, because obviously it shows people that soccer is happening. It kind of exposes more people. But as you and I have seen, whenever there's a major tournament, there's more interest long term. So maybe if people can see that 2002 World Cup, if you're U.S. soccer, then more people are going to watch Major League Soccer, which means yep. more people are going to be into soccer, which means more people are going to care about U.S. soccer. But here's the big thing that very specifically ties MLS and US soccer together. Mm -hmm. Soccer United Marketing sells the rights to Major League Soccer, Mm -hmm. US national team games, and Mexican national team games. And what they do is to increase the value of Major League Soccer broadcasts, they will bundle it. The thing that most most broadcasters want Mm -hmm. are those US national team games and those Mexican federation games, right? So they will bundle it all together. So if you want access to to those national team games, you also have to buy Mm -hmm. the Major League Soccer games. Right. Right? Yeah. That's, Which makes sense to that, me. That's the sort of marketing move that they've done, the commercialization move that they've done to increase the mm-hmm. value of Major League Soccer. And you can look at that and say, that's artificially inflating the value of Major League Soccer rights. Or you can look at that and say, that organization has done a good job of artificially inflating the value of Major League Soccer rights. Because their job is to make as much money as possible. I would honestly add a third thing, though, which I, I think is the reality of if you don't bundle those, 
do you get as many offers or as high as offers for just Major League Soccer no, alone? that's the point. Right, yeah. but I'm saying then how does that look for the league? I think that, that there's a decent possibility that you kind of have to do that in order to then be able to make the league look as strong as it looks as opposed yeah. to look at all the great things we're doing. We're adding all these new teams. David Beckham is around. Oh, but nobody wants the rights and nobody will broadcast it and we're using like a digital platform because yeah. that's the only way to do this. So I think bundling them does make sense, but I simultaneously understand then why people see that as this weird, innocuous, why are Major League Soccer's rights involved in the national team? That doesn't make any sense. I'm but not I, sure that's the correct use of the word innocuous. What do you mean? Innoc- doesn't innocuous mean not a problem? I mean, like, innocent, yeah. Oh, I see, sorry. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah I that's, that's how I'm seeing it, yeah. Okay. So, like, I, but I think, I guess what I'm saying, not to justify the relationship, is just that, to me, it goes back to a time when nobody else was doing it, so these people were like, okay, we're going to do it, it's just now we're in a situation where there's many more eyes on it, there's much more scrutiny, and there mm-hmm. are more people willing to do it, and it feels like it's kind of a closed circle at this point. And there is a valid critique about that closed circle. Mm-hmm. For example, back in the day, what, maybe 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. maybe more, NASL wanted to be a competing division one league Mm -hmm. in the united states and essentially u.s soccer would not sanction them as a division one league in the united states Mm -hmm. and the argument from nasl was u.s soccer is protecting major league soccer by not letting us be Mm. a division one league Mm. and that's probably was true but i would also you could also argue that u.s soccer is protecting um the the profile and the value of american soccer by not letting nasl be a division one league when it probably wasn't quite ready to fly that high say, wait, say that again i just want to make sure i'm getting so the argument from the nasl right. um teams mm-hmm. was u.s soccer is not letting us nasl be a division one league right right because mm-hmm. they don't want any competition for right. major league soccer mm-hmm. who they want to be the division one league yeah. right but at the same time you can also look at that and say it's probably better for soccer in the u.s that this league that really in my opinion it wasn't ready to be like a top tier league mm-hmm. it didn't quite have enough in play like it had the new york cosmos and it had raul for a bit and it had a couple of high profile players but mm-hmm. there weren't that many stable organizations doing really really well to warrant being a division one league yeah you know what i'm saying yeah i mean i think so u.s soccer is like protecting soccer but in doing so ends up protecting major league soccer yeah you know what i'm saying and I'm not a- letting new leagues flourish to the yeah. same height i'm aware that we're about to be attending an mls event on wednesday and what i'm about to say will not be very popular with them but like to some extent there is like the, the there are finite resources at a certain point in u.s soccer and i think there's a feeling of we have to have a league survive and the major right. league soccer seems like the best run most organized most consistently in operation that like we can kind of keep going and help with as opposed to yes there are other leagues that now pop up and are like well we should be d1 we need sanctioning we need funding you should care about us and that's probably true from their perspective but i think from a u.s soccer perspective it's sort of like we need one of our bear cubs to survive yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like, the, like to survive to be able able to grow up a little bit and so we're giving all of our resources yeah, to one this one's already like in good shape let's keep feeding it. exactly yeah i think <laughs> I mean, yeah basically and it's like sorry other bear cub that is now here it's a very serious analogy i'm going with i may have watched a nature documentary recently <laughs> uh but yeah i i do th- and so i see again where depending on your perspective What's the Star Wars line from a certain point of view? Uh, it's like from a certain point of view, it's this cabal oh, of this wealthy ben, people. Ben Kenobi. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything is <laughs> explaining away his lies. Yeah, where he just straight up lies. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's that's yeah. George Lucas definitely had all that figured out in the first movie. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that from a certain point of view, you could see it as like there's this wealthy cabal who only exists to make themselves richer at the expense of soccer in the country. And there's maybe some truth in that, and I think the inverse is, no, there are people who are kind of here first, who made things happen so that the game is where it is right now, and like maybe they could move on, but also that's not really how business works. We have an interview with um, Kevin Payne, Mm -hmm. who was one of the early, early, early guys, right? Um, I think we'll publish it maybe this week or next week, Mm -hmm. and he sort of, because he's almost famously very vociferously makes the case Mm -hmm. that hey all these rich people at the start put all this money in lost all this money to make soccer happen and we deserve some respect yeah yeah and i mean i know that like like there will be people out there who now are going to accuse me of being a paid shill because i've not come out and said u.s soccer is evil major league soccer is evil and and i think that like maybe that's fair because if you're a fan of nasl if you're not fair because you haven't been paid by mls well, that's if true. you're a paid chill, you're not getting paid very well. That is right? very true. We paid yeah. for this hotel room. We paid for our train. That you know of. Right. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I, I get where that perspective comes from. But for me, I see how stop start 
NASL has been, and I do not think that that is entirely because U.S. Currently soccer. Stop. Yeah, and I don't think that's just because U.S. soccer hasn't given them sanctioning. I think there are yeah, many yeah. other explanations for the way but things have gone. But they give them the same help as MLS. That, yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably true. Bear cub analogy. Bear cub Bear analogy. analogy Bear cub analogy. I would say this. So in the big picture like that, mm-hmm. I think you can make a good argument that what U.S. soccer did to protect Major League Soccer is justifiable. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of smaller things that do concern me about this relationship. And one of them is development academies. Yeah. So US soccer is responsible for, or, you know, its name is on and it runs mm. uh, the development academy system, which is, you know, the high profile, uh, best players get the best coaching at these really, really, really good uh, youth teams in the United States. And you've definitely seen a thing in recent years, you know, when they started to put them in tiers recently, mm-hmm. and it just so happened that the major league soccer teams were all in the higher tier even when there were some non-MLS-affiliated development academies with much better records in terms of performance and Mm -hmm. players and players produced and everything were put in the lower tiers. So lots of little things like that where I would argue there are places where US soccer is putting its thumb on the scale for Mm -hmm. Major League Soccer endeavors in ways that aren't really necessary. Like it's just going a little bit too far with things like that. Right, and that's where the Bear Cup analogy becomes problematic because I guarantee you the justification argument is there is, yes, there are outliers and there are certain situations in which maybe some players have moved on to the MLS senior team and so that development academy team looks poor as a result. But long-term, over the course of 10 years, that team is going to justify existence in that competition or whatever. But that is still then Major League Soccer seeing it as, well, the organizations that we're involved in and have a vested interest in are going to be the ones who are stable long-term. So those are the ones that deserve to be there. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So that's where that logic sort of falls on its face and I think is very much predicated on the idea that nobody else was doing this and somebody had to, so we did it, yeah. versus lots of other people are trying to do this now and maybe we're not as helpful as we potentially could be. We do have more salmon to go around, I guess <laughs> what I'm saying. I have a very specific prediction. What's that? We're going to get lots of tweets and emails Yo, um, you think? about this. And I'm sure yeah. that they've all waited until this point in the conversation <laughs> for it to finish to write those tweets and messages. <laughs> Can right. we just encourage letter writing? What if we give the physical address of the building? Can we encourage letters? I think after the conversation we just had, we might get anthrax. Good call. Yeah. Good call. The band. We'd I don't come, want that. We'd come and visit us. That'd be fine. <laughs> all right, before we move on to two more questions... One of today's sponsors... You know you've done this to me now, and I can't remember the... Is it the guitarist for Anthrax? It's going to bother me for a while. Anyway, let's go I, on. I, I couldn't name you a single member of Anthrax. Um, today's show is sponsored, sort of, by mm-hmm. The Athletic. We are, of course, part of The Athletic mm-hmm. Podcast Network ever since January. It's a move that we were really excited about and still are. Evan Seinfeld, I think it is. Anyway, it's let's go. not Evan Seinfeld. <laughs> um, did you know, Tyler, that The Athletic is more than just a podcast network? I did not. You what did. else is it? You did. It is home to 400 of the best sports writers Tell out more. there, covering every major team in every major league in the US, Canada, and the UK. That's not true because I haven't seen any UK cricket coverage. But Daryl, what if I <laughs> wanted to panic about a young up-and-coming prospect who we assume will be playing for the US national team, but maybe won't be? Oh, then you could read one of my uh, favorite columns. Oh, what? Uh, Ornstein on Monday. Mm-hmm. This is a really good athletic column. Ornstein mm-hmm. on Monday. It's David Ornstein. Um, there's also a, pad- a podcast, mm-hmm. um, Ornstein and Chapman. But David Ornstein is one of those writers who is... He's just got contacts, right? Yep. He's got, he knows someone everywhere. He can get news and access to things that other people can't yep. get. He's that type of journalist. Mm. And I think he knows which information he can put out there that it's not getting out there like any other way, Mm-mm. but also he's not burning bridges with his contacts. No. And so you get information from Ornstein that you just don't get elsewhere. Right. And one of the things he published today in his Ornstein on Monday column is that Gio Reyna is being watched by England. Right. Because mm-hmm. Gio Reyna, he has a Portuguese passport through his mother, Argentinian through Claudio Reyna, mm-hmm. or at least Argentinian heritage, obviously US mm-hmm. through Reyna. Um, but he was actually born in England right. while Claudio Reyna was playing for Sunderland and, and I think also lived there while, while Claudio Reyna played for Manchester City. You are correct. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and according to the Ornstein column, England, uh, the England national team and the FA keep a big old list. Are you telling any- me this entire article? Kind of. Okay. Well, I'm telling our listeners because yeah, they might not uh-huh. know about this, right? Um, do you yeah. not want this much detail? No, I'm, I'm saying that I'm also here. Okay. <laughs> um, and I've also read this article. Um, yeah, because I wanted to add – well, you can finish it and then I'll add what I thought was particularly great about it. Okay, so yeah, mm-hmm. they, um, Ornstein – this was news to me. I did not know this. I'm an England fan. I try and read everything about England. I did not know this. Mm-hmm. Um, England keeps this big list of England-eligible players. Right. Um, 
and Gio Reyna is on there. He has been tracked, and I think he's been watched like 30 times, mm-hmm. like 15 times live and 30 times via video. And it doesn't mean they're going to go and approach him, but it means that they're at least thinking about it. Well, see, this is the thing, though, is I think our conversation has been more dramatic than that article was. And that was the thing I enjoyed the most about it, is like... I've seen people then writing articles about that article where it's like, Reina could leave U.S. And it's just like, that is not what that article Mm -hmm. says. What that article very clearly says is that he is, I think, on their short list of 25 players that have been identified from thousands, from basically everyone who is eligible to play for England. They've identified these 25 players who are on the verge of breaking through or have already broken through, who have some connection, and then they're watching them further, which I think is what any good national team would do. You would explore all options and see if there are players out there, but there was no mention of if he's been contacted or what the response has yep. been, or even there was no quote even from an England source saying, yeah. we're definitely trying everything we can to get this kid. There wasn't even anything like that. And we don't even know that it's actually possible for Rainer to True. get citizenship mm-hmm. and switch to England. It may not be possible, but yeah. I'll tell you this, as an England fan, this makes me very, very happy. Mm-hmm. Not the prospect of getting Gio Reyna, just knowing that people at the Football Association mm-hmm. are doing this work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when we're talking about doing this work, I'm happy that makes you happy for England. But what makes me happy from uh, an athletic subscriber standpoint is that that article, I, I genuinely was written as responsibly as it could have been written in terms of not sensationalizing things, yep. not trying to get clicks or get clickbait or anything like that. It was accused That's of being not a, how the athletic works. Right? No, but it was accused of being a clickbaity title and a clickbaity article by people who I think hadn't even read it. Yeah. But to me, when I read that, it gave me all of the information without any sensationalism, without any of the according to sources in the FA, which means maybe it's a person, but maybe it's not. You never know. It was just a very straightforward telling of the facts in as succinct a way as possible. And as the ad copy says, mm-hmm. simply put, The Athletic has the best sports newsroom mm-hmm. on the planet because they don't have to do clickbaity things. They can just uh, write good articles. <laughs> and they do. You read one from uh, from George, correct? Yeah, George Qureshi, mm-hmm. the uh, managing editor um, of The Athletic Soccer, like the American side. It was all about – he went to um, to January camp to watch the U.S. men's national team and basically took a lot of notes about how the players communicate mm-hmm. with each other. I would say this wasn't mind-blowing for like you and I because we've played a lot of soccer. But if you've never played soccer before, maybe you've only watched on TV, um, or you've never been like really up close to seeing soccer before, uh, you will not have seen the, way, the, the level of communication between players. Mm-hmm. It is constant. It is full of information. The data that's being exchanged is absolutely fascinating. George does a really good job of sort of getting in there and um, giving you a feel for how much talking is happening, yeah. and in very succinct, efficient terms as well. Which which is useful because I remember being a kid and that was like the number one thing I heard from my coaches always is go to a game and listen to how much those players communicate. Yeah. And it's something that maybe you, you miss if you're a younger person, if you're new to soccer, you don't realize that it is constant communication and the brevity of the, that communication in order to then convey as much as you possibly can is an incredibly important skill set for both managers and players. Do you remember a coaching session you did with our adult team where mm-hmm. you made everybody play in silence to realize how how Oh, how much right. talking is important that's right i forgot it was eerie it was <laughs> really eerie. hard i think you just you just had to pass the ball it was like 18 people numbered one to 18 right and you just had to pass but you had to do it without communicating what number you were no, this, really was just, so no well. this was just like a game we oh, played okay. and i think it was actually it was almost like a basketball you could hold uh-huh. the ball and pass it oh yeah, yeah you yeah. weren't allowed to talk that's and then right. no one knew where to pass or exactly. how to pass yeah, yeah. yeah. talking mm-hmm. is important chaos baby chaos. reading is also important mm-hmm. and if you want to read the athletic um you can get a free trial go to theathletic.com slash total soccer and you'll get 40% off of the annual pres- uh, prescription uh-huh. subscription it's a prescription Give for the soccer too. knowledge yeah. um, they'll that, have that eventually like glasses that are prescribed to you that will show you athletic articles Google Glass tried it it just didn't work that works out to $3 a month for total access to some of the best sports coverage in the world so what are you waiting for it's theathletic.com slash total soccer to save 40% if ever there were an example of Google just like scrubbing something from existence, it's Google Glasses. I feel like that like yeah. that's a thing that I kind of completely forgot about. And at the in, when they came out, I remember people spending a lot of money to acquire those things. It was a big fail, right? Yeah, not so not so great, not big so great in fail. the end. All right, we're just really alienating oh. every giant corporation. Before we move on to answer mm-hmm. the next listener question, I think it's worth us being really clear. We don't think Gio Reyna is making the switch, no. right? Gio Reyna, his dad's an American international. Yeah. I believe his mother's an American international. Mm-hmm. Um, he is all in his pay for all kinds of US youth programs. He was in that ad about the future of yeah. US soccer. He is not looking to move. No. I mean, and yeah, so I think we're, we're good there. I'm not even going to add more. I'm just going to say no. He, he's with America forever. Forever. <laughs> Whether or not he likes it. <laughs> Next question comes from Patrick Walsh. With all the money dollar opportunities... Great why- phrase. I love that phrase. Money dollar. Why are Champions League knockout matches held at the same time of day? 
So, for example, last week, mm-hmm. um, Atletico Madrid versus Liverpool was on at the same time as Dortmund PSG. Yeah. And we had to, you had, you mm-hmm. had to try and watch both at once or yep. choose one. And I think Patrick's suggesting more money could be made if there were if they were played on different days, mm-hmm. if all games were played on different days, or if they were all played at different kickoff times so you could watch each one individually yeah. and I assume absorb advertising money Yeah, um, I mean each game individually. Which is true because I have that, even when like Man United are winning, I'll still have those moments where it's like the 93rd minute and I'm like, I, eh, if it's like a knockout round, like I could do with a goal, like let's even it up, let's go to extra time. <laughs> like I'm not ready for this game to be over. So I get that idea of wanting there to be like two games back to back that you can really sit down and plug yeah. into three hours of Champions League soccer. I Which think, you could, I suppose, if you DVR everything. I mean, yeah, DVR is mm. one answer. I think the, one of the reasons UEFA don't do this is that uh, it's really hard to to juggle the kickoff times, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because they do have a couple of group stage games that kick off early, mm-hmm. but they're not that popular with fans, right? Because if normal kickoff time right now is 8 p.m. Um, local, mm-hmm. then if you're going to have a game before, it's going to kick off at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. And if you think of like someone leaving their place of work, mm-hmm. say 5, 5.30, you've got no chance yeah. of getting to a game, right? Think, think about like from an MLS perspective of how often you'll see it covered on Twitter or in the article itself of like, there were 9,000 people in attendance, which isn't bad for 6 p.m. on a Wednesday. Right. <laughs> like, it, it makes it harder when you've got a lot of other stuff going on. The alternative is to go later in mm-hmm. the evening, and then it's really hard for people to get home because yeah. public transport is winding mm-hmm. down, and it's just it's, it's much, much harder. And you don't want to stay up late because you've got to go to work the next day. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, like, to not too highly inconvenience fans mm-hmm. is one of the reasons to not have um, early kickoffs and late kickoffs. The other thing is 8 p.m., or 7.45 as it used to be, but 8 p.m. as it is now, it's prime time. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. It makes sure that the games are in prime time um, in European countries. Yeah. And is sort of a, I shouldn't speak for like the far, far east, but is sort of a good time, generally speaking, because even here in the United States, like even on the West Coast, that game is then at what, like 11 a.m. or noon? Like that's, you're still going to be able to watch that. You can still take a lunch break and watch that. But I remember in Turkey, it was still like only two hours ahead. You could still go back, like watch those games at a decent enough hour. Like, you know, you were staying up late, but I think it's kind of in the sweet spot they want it to be to get as many eyes on it as possible. It's also worth noting, Patrick, that things used to be a lot more congested, Mm -hmm. right? Right now you get two games a day on Tuesday, two games a day on Wednesday. Then the following week, you get two games a day on Tuesday, two games a day on Wednesday, right? That's the round of 16, eight different games. It used to be all condensed into one week over two days. Mm -hmm. Four games a week on Tuesday, four games a week on Wednesday, and that was it. So they actually have spread it out a little bit more. Which makes sense because like... like, Started in what, 2009, 10, I believe is uh, when they made this switch. You are correct, yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and it makes sense that they had to do it that way because you had midweek competitions you had league cup you had fa cup if you're england you had other like domestic cup competitions if you're anywhere else and then you've got to give time to recuperate on either side of the Mm -hmm. weekend but you still can't like stretch it out super long into like one game a day uh every tuesday wednesday and now it's a super long competition because it stretches forever but also teams have other competitions and need things to be done by a certain time so you kind of have to accept what it is here's my random proposal for you daryl i have a proposal you ready for it yeah what if you made it so that the teams that are involved in european competitions cannot be involved in the domestic competitions at club or at uh, cup level so if you're automatically in europe you can't be in the fa cup or the league cup but as a result the champions league has to give a percentage of money to those cups to fund them and increase the prize money so then it incentivizes it a bit more but you could then stretch it out because you don't have those teams involved in what would be like tuesday wednesday night games i mean it would kill the FA Cup. I, I don't believe in mm-hmm. a lot of the the um, the theories that like the FA Cup is dying, this and that. Mm-hmm. But if you started removing the best four teams in England from the FA Cup, then mm-hmm. then that competition would be in trouble. Do you really think the FA Cup isn't dying? Yeah, I mean, it'll be around next year and I the mean, year after that and the year after that. And teams will celebrate when they win it. What else do you want? I mean, when we talked about Robin Van Persie, we were like, he won the FA Cup. Meh. Like, I guess that's my response to that. It's like, it's not winning that much of a thing. Well, it's always like, it's a bonus. Like, mm-hmm. the Premier League is still the competition. The domestic competition to win is always the league, yeah. right? In every, in every country. Yeah. I think Ryan and I, this is maybe informed by Ryan and I having a conversation about him saying, I've heard that narrative forever. This might be the year the FA Cup died for me. <laughs> I forget what it was exactly that made did him he, feel that did way. Did he then go on to talk about how Saturday Night Live is dead? Uh, no, he did not. He did not. <laughs> he is not a, he's not a grumpy old man, I don't I'm think. So, I'm sort of making that analogy because people say that pe- that story is always being mm-hmm. there, right? Saturday night dead. It's no good anymore. And then it turns out a couple of years later it is. So do you really see it that way? Because I, like, I feel like going back to like, like the 1980s, do you really feel like the conversation there in England at the time was like the FA Cup is no longer that impactful? It's, it's less valued than it was because mm-hmm. more teams are in Europe, more teams in the Champions League and mm-hmm. this and that. But it's not dying. 
right? That's, I think that's a different thing. It can be less valued than it used to be because fewer trophies were available, fewer competitions, mm-hmm. fewer teams were able to play in big competitions. Um, so it's less valued, but I think dying is the word I, I So you're uh, arguing propose. semantics here. You're arguing the well, word kind of, I use. But people right. use the word dying. If yeah. people said it's less valuable than it used to be, then I'd agree. Right. But dying means it will die if we continue on the current trajectory. Right. And I, I absolutely don't think it will. But if you start removing the four biggest teams, mm-hmm. then we're in a death spiral, right? Because then the biggest teams aren't in it. I don't know. Maybe you're putting more money into it. Maybe those smaller teams care more about it. Maybe it increases the competition, Daryl. I don't know if it's dying. I don't know if I would accept that. I don't know if I would accept that, Daryl. Uh, final question uh, comes from Ross Hall. Uh, if you could pick one team for Messi to play on after Barcelona and before retiring, what team would it be and why? The one caveat here is other than Wolves or Manchester United. Damn it. Mm-hmm. Damn it. Um, okay, so I think we probably both are going to say Newell's old boys. Are we? I'm not. Okay. Mm-mm, I've got a different team. Actually, I wanted to ask you, well, for, what, why Newell's old boys? Because that's where he started. Mm-hmm. Right? That was his youth team mm-hmm. career. Where he didn't actually get to make a first team debut because Barcelona took him up and mm-hmm. took him off to La Masia very, very early. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I actually haven't heard him talk about it, but I imagine that he would like to at some point go back and play for Newell's old boys. And I would just kind of like the romance of that, of uh, Messi going back to Argentina. And I like the idea as well. Newell's old boys, I had a quick look at sort of their, their standing mm-hmm. in Argentinian soccer, right? They're very mid-table team with occasional successes, right? They'll occasionally win a Clausura, uh, but not the big, big championship. Mm-hmm. But they're sixth right now. They finished 15th last year. So if you add Leo Messi to that for a couple of years, you could have like a Maradona at Napoli style, Leo Messi at Newell's Old Boys, a uh, couple of years in Argentina. Aside from uh, like Copa Lib, like final or something like that, we don't tend to watch a lot of Argentine soccer. Mm-mm. You are correct that if Leo Messi went back to Newell's Old Boys and suddenly was kind of tearing the league apart... It would probably incentivize us watching that league a bit more. Yeah, so it would be a sensation. Work. Yeah, all right. Be, all right. He would be contributing to Argentine soccer. In that yeah, way. yeah. I, so I have I have two options here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, I'm not done. Okay, <laughs> uh, I have one simply for like drama, but also a little bit serious. In that, I think Messi, where he is right now, I think a lot of coaches sort of build the team around him and play to his strengths. So yeah. like. It would be cool to see him at, say, Liverpool, but is he going to press the way that team does? I don't think he would. So that, Actually, that was one of my answers. That really? I wanted to see him at Liverpool because I think if he's going to play somewhere else, I would like to see him, if it's not Newell's old boys, mm-hmm. I would like to see him in an already successful team mm-hmm. so that it didn't become a just-give-Messi-the-ball kind of team because mm-hmm. then it, you're kind of setting him up for failure, right? Because he can't win everything that way. Mm-hmm. But if he could be the sort of, uh, say, Mohamed Salah gets sold and they plug Leo Messi in, like, that, that Liverpool team would uh, be very, very exciting to watch. See, I, I honestly, I disagree with you. I really do, because I think that he is not going to do a lot of what Mohamed Salah does. That's yeah. not his game anymore. So I think he comes in and is like, this isn't what I want to do. I guess I'm forgetting that he's already 32, mm-hmm. right? So we're over, I think because his performance hasn't really yeah. dipped, mm-hmm. I'm kind of forgetting that we're already talking about an aging footballer. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of strange to think about. And it, yeah. and it is why you sort of have to incorporate that. But in the end, I couldn't really like just say, like, oh, send him to a Major League Soccer team, because eh, that'd be cool. But it's not like where I want him to go at, like, well, he could still be, like, the yeah. player in the world. Uh, I think it would be really interesting. I'm not saying it would be good. I'm saying I think it would be really interesting if he were with Mourinho at Tottenham, because that does feel like a manager who would build the team around him. And it would be a very defensive team. We know Jose does not like to do a lot of tactical game plan when it comes to like possession, possession and attack. He's much more defensive, and then we kind of hit them with our creative players. Yeah. That feels like a team built around Lionel Messi, but it would also be the unstoppable force of like, no, we will, we will do nothing versus the immovable object of Lionel Messi just doing what he wants to do. And I don't mean to paint that in a negative way, or maybe you could even flip those around, but it's more of a like... Josie would have to adjust a little bit the Jose style so you, you because he see has this, Lionel Messi. You want to see this more to see Messi's effect on Jose Mourinho? A little bit. <laughs> if, if he is the one player that can make Jose Mourinho be like, yeah, all right, we can attack a little bit. Uh, but my serious answer is Borussia Dortmund for the reasons that you have already mentioned, basically. Because that is a team that have now Erling Haaland coming in and kind of establishing himself. They've got Jadon Sancho. They've got a, a quality midfield. They've got star players there. They just don't have that, like... Truly next level, like, like, you know, Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, I think. And, and I do think that right now we think of Dortmund as a team that have very good recruiting. Your machine agrees. Uh, very good recruiting. They're very good scouting. They bring in young players. They will spend some money. 
but there's an expectation that eventually that player is going to be sold to Bayern Munich or yeah, that's allowed their model, to leave on a free, right? That's their right? Surf, right? Exactly. But are you imagining Dortmund spending big money to get him? Because that's not how Dortmund operates. No, I, well, yeah, no. But I think maybe with Lionel Messi they would. But maybe Lionel Messi leaves on a free as he can, and then he signs wherever he wants to. That's interesting. But, but the picture I'm painting he here is... He goes and mentors the, uh, the younglings at Dortmund. Yeah, well, yeah. the picture I'm painting here is, like, Juve sort of had that same reputation of they're this amazing Italian team, but they aren't at that next level the way some of the Premier League teams are, the way Bayern Munich is, the way Barcelona and Real Madrid are. So they're, maybe if a club comes calling, they're going to lose that player. Ronaldo goes there, and it does change that branding a little bit. It does change the way you perceive Juve because they have Ronaldo. I feel like Dortmund could be the same thing. So it definitely would be interesting, mm-hmm. right? I would, I would enjoy it. I wouldn't like it because I think it would go against the sort of new Dortmund business model that they adapted, adopted after nearly going out of business. Mm. You know what I mean? They went for this like buy young, buy low, sell high, buy young, sell at 20 mm-hmm. something, right? If they went to um, the more, the weird thing that Juve have done recently where they've decided to take some big financial risks and get Cristiano Ronaldo, mm-hmm. I wouldn't like to see Dortmund stop going down you're talking path. about you're talking about from a salary standpoint because like ronaldo just, just from a like business um, ronaldo was a free wasn't he yeah but he's paid a fortune that's what i'm saying so you're talking about fortune. like salaries versus transfer yeah and just gotcha. in terms of like gotcha, spending gotcha, gotcha. spending big money on older mm-hmm. high profile players if dortmund start doing that then their whole um their whole system has to be upended mm-hmm. right because that money that goes to messi doesn't go to uh like some academy thing or some young player coming through um so that, that's my take on mm-hmm. uh, messi at dortmund much as i would enjoy seeing it I think the obvious answer, not the, I think the best answer is that we team him up with Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> like, let's get Juve to go all in and we go Messi and Ronaldo up front for Juventus. How much do you think they hate each other? Do you think they do or do you think no. that's a media-driven thing? I think it's a media-driven thing. There is a competition between uh-huh. them because they're both competitive men, right? But yeah. I don't think it's like they're glaring at each other, right? You see them sometimes uh, at the Ballon d'Or Awards and they're reasonably friendly. In as much as they can be friendly, yes. Yeah. That would be fascinating to see if they actually get along, could actually play together, yeah. or if they would be okay with sharing the spotlight. And there's already that system that we talked about the other day when we previewed, mm-hmm. previewed Juve, where they let Ronaldo have like the left side of attack, mm-hmm. and there's like an attacking midfielder behind, and then someone else has the right side of attack. Sometimes it's Higuain, sometimes it's Dybala. What if it really was, all right, the new Juve shape is, well, the same Juve shape, 4-3-1-2, mm-hmm. left side attack, just has that whole left side, Cristiano, right side attack, has that whole right side, Leo Messi. Mm-hmm. And away we go. Yeah. It, I mean, it would be interesting. Ronaldo would be 35. Messi would be 33 doing it next year. But I think Juve would still go for it. I already said in the Juve preview, you won't get a lot of defending from that front three. You yeah, had yeah. Messi in there. You are getting no defending from yes, that front have three. Yes, <laughs> you'd have to have an attacking midfielder behind them yeah. who maybe had some legs to get up and down or could yeah. burst through the middle. Mm-hmm. Then the three underneath that, it's going to have to be a really hard-working, capable, defensive, willing-to-sacrifice midfield. Yeah, pretty much. Three Blaise Matuidis. <laughs> <laughs> so it's Messi, Ronaldo, hard-working, number yeah. 10, and then three Blaise Matuidis. Yes. Uh, Realistic, man. I'd watch Realistic. it. I'd watch it. <laughs> um, truth is, he's probably going to just retire at Barcelona. Yeah, I think so. It feels that way, doesn't it? It does, because he doesn't seem like the player... He doesn't really seem like a player who, despite making laughable Lay's advertisements and weird Pepsi ads. Yeah. He's not really like about, like, I need that next big payday or something like that. So moving to Major League Soccer doesn't feel like a move that would appeal to him unless he just wants to try something different because I don't think any club in the world is going to throw so much money at him that it, that's kind of a moot point, basically. Yeah. And it becomes, yeah, what does he really want out of the rest of his career? And I feel like retiring a one-club, mostly a one-club man... Uh, and retiring with the status he has probably appeals a little bit. Yep. And is also a Spanish citizen at this point. So I think, you know, just lives comfortably in Spain for the rest of his life. Settle there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, settle there. You ready to move on to scouting? I believe I am. All right. So thank you to everybody for the uh, listener questions. If you've got a question for us, it's totalsoccershow.com slash questions. That it is. If you sign up to support the show at totalsoccershow.com slash join, um, we assign you a young player to keep an eye on. And then we ask you to send us reports about that young player so we can track that player's career and use it as content on the show. We've got lots of reports to share right now. And more still left to the document, which means more scouting this week, probably. Lots of Americans here as well. Mm -hmm. All right. You want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll go. Arthur Halliday scouting Kobe Hernandez Foster, 17-year-old American left back for unattached FC. Wait, I thought he was with LA Galaxy. With an asterisk around that. No. Uh, Hernandez Foster will sign with Wolfsburg when he turns 18 at the end of June. He'll join a strong American youth contingent at Wolfsburg uh, where he can only hope Michael Edwards' presence means Kobe Hernandez Foster will finally stop being pushed inside as a makeshift center back as he was with the (laughs) USU-17s and stick to his natural left-back position. 
Wow, Americans in the Bundesliga. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Majewski scouting Shaq Moore, 23-year-old American right-back at Tenerife. Mm-hmm. David says Shaq Moore netted his first goal of the season in a 4-2 victory over Extremadura. He also recently made four Copa del Rey starts, which included an upset over Real Valladolid in the third round. Shaq converted his penalty in a second-round shootout victory, but hit the bar with his attempt in the round of 16 loss to Athletic Club de Bilbao, which finished 3-3 with two red cards issued. Drama. I'm assuming neither of those to Shaq Moore. Neither of those to Shaq Moore. Nope, nope, nope. Jeff and Sam Huffman scouting Mukwele Akele, the 23-year-old American midfielder for Villarreal B. Please be good news, please be good news, please be good news. Eh, not so much. Uh, but I do want to talk about it uh, from this report. Um, Mukwele was an unused substitute for the fourth consecutive game for Villarreal B in the Spanish third division. Uh, Jeff and Sam say he has seven games and a goal this year, but is now 23 years old and may need to pursue other options this summer. This MLS? This feels like a mid-season MLS, like, oh, yeah, that guy. Like, that's really exciting. Yeah. And I'm Minnesota, maybe? Yeah, get, him, Minnesota, get him in Minnesota. Isn't yeah. he from there? Mm-hmm. His Minnesota connections. I'm not sure how it works with allocation order and all that business. Mm-hmm. What about the allocation disorder of it? Those guys would know. Okay. Those guys would know. <laughs> we can ask them. Um, we can ask them. Gabriel Newton is scouting Ali Watt, 22-year-old American defender on loan at Melbourne City FC from North Carolina Courage. Gabriel says Ali Watt was drafted in the 2020 NWSL draft by the North Carolina Courage she sure was. with the sixth overall pick and was then loaned to first place Melbourne City FC top of the W League in Australia until the end of the season. Watt debuted against Western Sydney coming on in the 67th minute and scoring in the 86th Decent. from a fortuitous cross in the box. There's only one regular season game left with quite, the semi quite alone. <laughs> and grad and finals remaining. So four games I guess maybe just like very quick match fitness and some professional minutes. But just in time for NWSL right? Yeah I suppose so. That yeah. may, it actually does make sense go get some professional minutes Come on back, then you, then we'll uh, then we'll get you going. This is why North Carolina Courage keep winning the league. That relationship is useful. It's just we need Australia to be closer. <laughs> Fly, <laughs> flying halfway around the world for five games is uh, a lot. Um, let's move on to uh, Michael Bate, scouting Tierna Davidson, twenty-one-year-old American defender for the Chicago Red Stars. After missing Olympic qualifying, Davidson is back with the U.S. Women's National Team as she would have called up for the She Believes Cup training camp roster. Uh, a few days later, Tierna was added to the NWSL allocated player list for the first time in her career. Make that money. Make, make that, that money. money. Mm-hmm. Devon Kiefer is scouting Erling Haaland. Have you heard of him? 19-year-old Norwegian striker for Bruce Dortmund, mm-hmm. it says here, but yeah. yes, I have heard of him. <laughs> um, Devon says, Haaland was recently named Bundesliga Player of the Month and Rookie of the Month. I didn't know they did that. For the month of January. Fair, fair. In Dortmund's 4-0 win over Eintracht Frankfurt, Haaland was able to beat Frankfurt defender David Abraham to a ball that was squared by Ashraf Hakimi to score his eighth goal in five appearances in the Bundesliga. Good numbers, good numbers. Good numbers indeed. Jeffrey Tanner scouting uh, Bukayo Saka, 18-year-old English left-sider for Arsenal. This report is live from the Emirates, says Jeffrey, who was there for work, I believe, or at least in England for work. Uh, Saka electrified going forward, getting an assist, an incredible nutmeg and a 4-0 thrashing of Newcastle. Even more importantly, he looked more confident and aggressive in defensive duties. Uh, Sead Kolasinac and Kieran Tierney are both on their way back from injuries, so it will be interesting to see how much time Saka gets on the pitch and at what position. He Got the uh, the cross against uh, Everton for mm-hmm. Pepe's goal. I believe, there we right? go. Um, I will add also watching him watch the footage of his game in which he had that nutmeg. It is one of my favorite things as he watches the footage and the nutmeg happens. You can hear him on mic just go, whoops. When, where's this? <laughs> it's like, I think it was in like the post-match thing where yeah. they like award you MVP or whatever and they talk to you so afterwards. So is watching himself with a nutmeg. Yeah, and, oh. he, and he does that and just drops the little whoops in there. And it was terrific. Ryan Marzak is scouting Piona Sisto, the 25-year-old Danish attacker for Celta Vigo. Is, is he aging, aging out of the scouting network, maybe? Never. Uh, Ryan says Sisto was a critical sub for Celta against Sevilla. Coming on at halftime, he peppered the goalkeeper with four shots in the final 45 minutes, the last of which was the game winner in the 90th. Sisto hit a low-driven shot from the left wing off the far post and into the back of the net, earning a massive three points for his relegation-threatened side, Celta Vigo. I believe, That's bad news for Stu Holden. I, very true. I believe the uh, the only rules we have are you can switch if you want to. You can request a new player to scout, uh, or if that player retires, then you get a new scout. So until Pione Sisto retires or Ryan Marzak gets tired of him, that's the scout for life, my All friend. right. Sounds good. Uh, Lucas Miller scouting Danilo Acosta, 22-year-old American, left back for the LA Galaxy. Things were looking up for Acosta after he was signed by the Galaxy in the offseason. Then came reports that he had torn his ACL during <gasps> preseason training and will miss much of the 2020 season, if not all of it. Oh, that's rough. Mm-hmm. That's rough. Yep. Andrew Baird is scouting Josh Perez, 22-year-old American winger for Unattached FC. Oh, no. Andrew says, after mutually agreeing to part ways with LAFC earlier this season... 
I'm not sure how uh-huh. sure those things are. <laughs> Perez's search for playing time has taken him to Scotland, where he's reportedly on trial with Dundee United in the Scottish Championships. That's the second tier. Dundee United currently sit eight, 18 points clear atop the Scottish Championship. I think they're so they stand up. a very, very good chance of promotion to the SPL, um, actually the Scottish Premiership, next season. They also currently employ Americans Ian Harks and Dylan Powers. Dundee United, it's the... Uh, it's the, the new Shaka, yeah. the new for America. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's on the list. It's on the list for sure. Uh, Brad Wilgus, oh, excuse me, no, I skipped one there. Uh, Ross Hall scouting Travian Souza, 16-year-old American left back for Hamburger. I did not know about Travian until this uh, report. Okay. So thank you to the Scouting Network. Thank you to Ross. Thank you to Daryl for uh, assigning <laughs> this. Souza made his first start for Hamburger SV2 in the Regionalliga Nord, which is Germany's fourth division last week. Uh, translated tweets uh, that Ross read positively mentioned his maturity, technical ability, and ability to dissolve difficult situations. That feels like a Google Translate phrasing. Um, Ross also spoke to German writer Nicholas Haydn uh, via Twitter DMs, who told Ross that you could tell that the region Liga Nord was physically tougher, so Sousa would have to prove his athleticism to continue his journey. Brad Wilgus is scouting Renier Jesus, mm-hmm. the 18-year-old Brazilian attacker for Real Madrid. Brad says, The young number 10, Renier Jesus, was unveiled at the Bernabeu this week after a $33 million move from Flamengo. In a long-standing tradition of young Brazilians being compared to old Brazilians, he is being likened to Kaká and is the fourth Brazilian under-21 player for Real Madrid and the, the fourth Brazilian under-21 player that they brought in over the last year. He'll play on the B team, uh, what they call Castilla, mm-hmm. um, for the rest of the season. But he did do some very impressive keepy-ups, which is the requirement uh, when you're a new Real Madrid signing. I did. He did a lot of outside-of-the-foot juggling, uh, which is impressive. I just still don't understand why that is a tradition. (laughs) Whatever. Marcus Goodrich, scouting Shallow Tracy, 21-year-old English forward on loan at Macclesfield from Tottenham. Tracy scored his first goal for Macclesfield Town, calmly putting the ball in the back of the net after going 1v1 with the goalkeeper. Tracy was played up front in the center forward role in a 3-5-2. That feels like there were two Fords there, but sure. Uh, And put fourth place Plymouth Argyle under siege during the first half with multiple shots on goal. Tom Gaffney is scouting James Sands, the 19-year-old American defensive mid and centre-back for NYCFC. Tom says Sands played all of NYCFC's CONCACAF Champions League game against Costa Rican side AD San Carlos. The 5-3 win saw James playing what appears to be his most natural number six role in a 4-5-1 formation. It's a good sign that he's earned a spot with a new position under new manager Ronnie Delia, as he played mostly in the middle of a back three under Dama Torrent last season. Ooh, we mm-hmm. might see James Sands tomorrow night. Wednesday night, if we go to... Um, I keep doing that, too. If we go to see NYCFC in the second leg. When I messaged Ivis earlier, I was like, are you going to be there tomorrow? And he's like, I'll be there Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ben Richards, final report, scouting Efren Alvarez, 17-year-old Mexican-American midfielder for the LA Galaxy. Bad, bad news and then decent news. Uh, Alvarez was stretched off 10 minutes into a substitute appearance in a preseason match against Colorado. It appears that Alvarez and Jonathan Lewis of the Rapids got tangled up as they fought for the ball, and Alvarez immediately signaled to the bench that he needed some treatment. When Ben sent this, uh, there was no word... But we've had an updated report uh, from Scalotto saying he suffered a lateral uh, lateral ligament damage to his left ankle, but it will only keep him out for about two weeks. It's, so. nice, that, it's nice that Scalotto uh, contacted you directly to tell you that. He did. I didn't tell you that? Yeah. Yeah, I texted him earlier. Oh, no, cool. I did not. I read the thing where he said, yeah, this is the case, and this is the case, and this is the case. Thank you to everybody mm-hmm. for the scouting reports today, and thank you again for the questions. Once again, it's totalsoccershow.com slash questions. We have to be honest and say we don't know what the rest of the week holds on the Total Soccer show. That sounds ominous. Because we don't know what our schedule is going to be like. That is true. All we know is we've got this hotel room. Mm-hmm. We've got microphones. Uh, we've maybe got MLS Assist and Allocation Disorder coming in. Um, there'll be Champions League games. We won't be able to do the full reviews, but we'll keep an eye on, on what's going on. There will be more shows of one form or another. <laughs> of one the form or another. the promise I can manage. <laughs> I like it. I like that. All right. So, Taylor Rockwell, thank you for sitting across the bed from me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you again later this week.